Good evening, Prince George Winyaw Church, and welcome to our third week of our Lenten series on the book of Galatians. This is Gary Beeson, the rector of Winyaw Church, and I'm looking forward to spending just maybe 30 minutes tonight going over chapter 4 in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, Mike Lumpkin has done a magnificent job explaining the book and its purposes up to this point. And what I would like to do tonight is take it line by line, or maybe better said, chunk by chunk, and give us an overview of what chapter 4 is all about. And then at the end of this brief teaching, what I'd like to do is leave the listeners with a few questions. So the thought that I want to bring to chapter 4 from the very beginning um, comes from a quote by John Stott in his commentary on Galatians. Stott's quote reads, Paul's sequence of thought for chapter 4 in the book of Galatians might best be summarized this way. Once we were slaves, now we are sons. How then can we turn back to the old slavery? Another idea I'd like us to hold in our minds while we listen to some of the commentaries about this particular chapter is the concept of the fourfold walk of the Christian life. It's been described in this fourfold way as step one, living outside the law. That's the time in most people's lives when they don't even realize that there is God's law. Um, They may be taught it as young people or they may not have been taught it as young people but as uh, they are maturing they come to realize later that what they've been living the sinful life the unrepentant life is a life lived step one outside the law the second step of the christian faith has been described as life under the law this is when the gospel of grace grabs a person's heart and actually pulls them onto their knees and makes them realize that they have been living a sinful life and that God is there quick to forgive them if they would only repent. And once a person repents, then they begin to feel uh, the conviction of the law, um, as Calvin taught, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's step two. Step three is a life lived under the law of Christ. Or better said, maybe a life lived of forgiveness. It's understanding that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and not to abolish the law, but to redeem the law in its fullest sense. Christ comes born of a virgin, a human being, and lives his life sinless, obeying the law and fulfilling all the commandments of righteousness. So step three is when the Christian believer begins to realize what Christ has done, the penalty that he's paid, and the life that he's offered to each believer. And step four could best be described as a life lived alongside the law, powered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to get to tonight in chapter four. Paul's going to make an argument like he has been doing in the previous chapters, For this life lived in the spirit, this promised life of goodness, the full life of the Christian believer. And it's a life that uh, Paul will give us a couple of examples, one from the Bible and then one from 
uh, times, the modern times that he was living in, or the pre-modern times that he was living in, in, in the Roman society. And so that's what we've got to look forward to tonight, is this four-step process of the Christian life, as some have described it. Life lived outside the law, when we weren't aware that there was even God's law. Life lived under the law. Life lived under the law of grace in Jesus Christ. And then that fourth step, life lived alongside the law, alive in the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first eight verses in uh, the chapter four of the book of Galatians. And let's just take it line by line. I'll pause occasionally. Uh, you feel free to stop the recording and maybe uh, make notes. Or uh, if you're doing this with a, a couple or if it's being done in the home and you've got teenagers involved, maybe pause it occasionally. I will try to leave room at the end uh, for questions that I'd like for you to discuss uh, with whoever you're listening to this with or questions for you to ponder and consider on your own. So let's begin. Galatians chapter 4 Verses 1 through 7. The translation I've chosen to use for tonight is the English Standard Version. Uh, Any version uh, of the Bible will do. For Bible studies, I'd recommend either the NIV, the ESV, um, or the King James Version. Uh, The New King James Version is fantastic. It has um, some old English, but it is uh, very close to the uh, translation of the Greek. And so if you can work your way through the New King James, I'd recommend that. But I think uh, for Bible study, the NIV or the ESV works just fine. Um, Chapter 4 begins. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. Verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And, verse 5, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What Paul is doing is taking the reader or the listener from a place of early childhood to adulthood. So we could call this particular teaching, uh, the gospel is for maturity meaning that the gospel will help us see our life in Christ as one that grows not only in our faith, but also grows in our Christian maturity and understanding of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. To go the other way around for Paul would have meant giving up adulthood to become like a child or to act infantile, or, he'll make an argument later, giving up one's freedom to become a slave. As ridiculous as it might sound, that's exactly what the Galatian church in Paul's eyes was doing. This was a church that he had evangelized, that he had established, um, that was full of Gentile believers who were now being misled by what were known at the time as Judaizers, people who wanted, of the Jewish faith, who wanted to, a Jewish Christian faith, who wanted to bring people back through the Jewish system before they could actually claim 
Christianity or faith in Jesus Christ, things like circumcision and the requirements of law keeping on the Sabbath and other things. And what Paul is speaking to is the slavery that the law brings when it's understood in those ways. So let's look at this quickly line by line and see if we can't pick out a couple key things that might make us pause and ask a few questions. In the beginning of the chapter, Paul essentially establishes this idea that children are heirs to their parents' estate. In other words, when you are a small child, you are a member of a family, and you have all the rights and privileges of an adult in that family up to and including um, everything that is the family's possession will one day be yours. He likens that relationship as a child in a family to that of a slave um, because of the idea that the slave is under the rule of his master. Likewise, children are under the rule of their guardians or parents, as he says in verse 2, until they reach a certain age of maturity. Paul goes on to say that his children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's in verse 3. What he's talking about there is the basic civil and social rules of society that when our parents tell us to um, stand up straight or when our parents tell us to use good table manners or when our parents tell us to um, cough into the uh, elbow of our shirt um, those are the rules that parents impose on us that as children we are obliged to follow Paul then interrupts his parents' children slave master analogy in verse 4 to tell us about how the problem of our slavery to the law would be solved. And he spells it out in one of the greatest theological sentences um, in Scripture. He essentially summarizes um, the truth of the gospel with several key words. When the fullness of time had come at the beginning of verse 4. In other words, for Paul, the moment Christ enters the world, it is as if the great stopwatch of time has been stopped and then restarted. Uh, in some ways, and especially in the Eastern Orthodox traditions, um, theologians believe that Christ's work was finished the moment he stepped foot or the moment he took his first breath as a baby. Imagine the child in the manger taking that first breath after coming out of his mother's womb and the shockwave of the voice of God going out across the world like a nuclear blast, um, disturbing all of the forces of sin and evil. In other words, as soon as Jesus breathed his first breath, the forces of evil knew their time was short. The next piece of this great theology there in verse 4 is the piece that he is fully man and fully God, linked together by the words, God sent forth his son, uh, we say that every week in the creed, born of a woman. So there we have the theology from Paul of what it means to be fully God, the Son of God, but born of a human mother. And here's the clincher for his point in this particular chapter. Paul says that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus will later say to the Pharisees and to others, he didn't come to abolish the law, but as it continues on in this verse, or excuse me, in verse 5, Jesus, born under the law, comes to redeem those who are under the law. And Jesus is going to do that by fulfilling the law, which is impossible for us sinful humans, and a linchpin 
for the whole idea of what Paul or the point Paul is trying to make about the freedom that Christ has won for us by his work, not ours. I want to pause here and tell you a quick story about a Galatians preaching series I did a few years back at Canuga with another priest in our diocese, uh, Sean Norris. And Sean and I took the book of Galatians and we broke it up into five, um, actually six sermons that we preached over a week. And the titles of the sermons, and this might be worth writing down, um, the first sermon was called Freedom from the Fear of People. Freedom from Fear, basically. Uh, The second sermon was called Freedom to Understand Our Calling. This idea that we're all called by God into his mission for his purposes. Uh, The third sermon was called Freedom from the Law. Uh, The fourth sermon, which is Galatians chapter 4, was Freedom for God's Children, which is where we are tonight, and that's the image that we're kicking off the chapter with in the first seven verses. Um, The fifth sermon was called Freedom for Freedom's Sake, which is what we'll get to next week, which is Galatians chapter 5. And then the sixth sermon, uh, the end of chapter 5, was uh, Freedom for Life in the Spirit. Paul's going to hint at that tonight at the end of this chapter. But let me quote Sean Norris, who was the other priest, who's from our diocese. He's at Holy Cross uh, Sullivan's Island. Um, let me read this brief quote from Sean that came from uh, the information we gave to the people who were coming to the conference. Sean says, Galatians is a book focused on the issue of freedom and our tendency to run from it. We are afraid of freedom because it seems to go against the grain of self-control and predictable outcomes that we naively believe are possible. The Galatians are a perfect example of our allergy to freedom. And I love that term, allergy to freedom. The Galatians were turning away from what Paul taught them, justification through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and turning back to a life of requirements and regulation, or the law. In other words, if you want to be a real Christian, then you must do this and you must do that. You must look like this. You must say these things. You must do the right thing. It becomes restrictive instead of liberating. Jesus, Sean goes on to say, is not the means to an end. He is the end. So why do we keep worrying about the law when we have Jesus himself? The law's whole purpose is to get us to Jesus. And now that we have him, the law's job is done. So, last line from Sean's quote, quit worrying about the law and enjoy Jesus. That's this point that Paul is making here in the middle of this first part of the chapter where he brings us uh, the means by which we have been saved. That's the purpose of those verses 4, 5, and 6. So that's where we find ourselves, verse 6, because we have received adoption as sons. And because we are sons and daughters, verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul will say in Romans, uh, that book later, um, that the only way a person can say Jesus Christ is Lord, the only way a person can call on God and call him as Father is if the spirit of God is in him. So there it is. That's that fourth step in the spiritual life that I was talking about. Life lived alongside the law in the spirit, crying, Abba, Father. And if that's possible, verse 7 says, we're no longer slaves then, but we're sons and daughters. And if we are sons and daughters, then we are heirs through Christ. So this is the first place I want to pause tonight and ask this question. 
Have we ever considered ourselves, have we ever really considered ourselves as adopted sons and daughters of Christ? And if we have, what does it mean to claim that adoption? In other words, what what would it take for us to come to begin to believe in more deeper and more profound ways that we are in fact adopted, that Jesus' work on the cross is all that needed to be done for us to be brought back into relationship with God. And if that's true, what's keeping us from telling everyone that good news? The second of our three parts of chapter four that I want to go over tonight are verses eight through 20. I'll read those all the way through and then come back like I've done in the first seven verses and give us a little bit of theological insight. So beginning at chapter 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish... I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. These 12 verses in chapter 4 are not as easily discernible or easy to understand as the first seven. In these 12 verses, Paul is actually making appeal to the Galatian church on behalf of who he is and what he's proclaimed to them. And at the heart of this, what Paul's Uh, letter is trying to say for this particular place is that in suffering Paul has brought them the gospel Uh, Paul uses this image and idea of suffering for the gospel in many of his letters and it's also something uh, that every Christian who's ever followed Jesus for more than a minute would agree with I mean we have a prayer list each week in our church where we pray for people who are sick recovering from illness or long-term sufferers of illness Um, we pray for people who've had traumatic events happen to them we are all praying now for all of those that are suffering from this virus and all of the people who are working nonstop to help eradicate this virus. And so suffering, the point that Paul brings out in the middle of these verses, is a key component to the Christian life. Paul actually takes that a step further and says, not only is suffering key to understanding the Christian life, but in suffering, the gospel is actually spread and it grows. In other words, when suffering occurs, we as Christians today can can see 
uh, how the church uh, responds in times of need. I mean, it's it's simple. Uh, when you look at famines around the world, when you look at people who are suffering after natural disasters, the first people consistently on the ground in those situations are almost always Christians, almost always followers of Jesus. They run into the suffering. They're like the first responders who ran into the buildings during 9-11 when there was the threat of the buildings catching on fire or collapsing. Uh, they weren't worried about their lives. They were laying down their lives for someone else and willing to suffer uh, up to the, and including the, the penalty of death uh, to try to help save other people. And that's what that's how strongly Paul is speaking to the Galatian church in these 12 verses. He reminds them that when he came to them, they were excited about the words he was teaching them, that they um, latched on to his testimony. They latched on to the gospel of grace. Um, and now he's essentially asking uh, that rhetorical question there in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, the Judaizers are opposing the gospel of grace that Paul taught. They are saying essentially, you must obey the law uh, in order to be saved. You must practice these things. You must have... Uh, particular things done to your bodies in terms of circumcision in order to be saved. And Paul says that is antithetical. That is not the truth. And so are they calling him a liar in a sense by saying that they're starting to believe what these other people's uh, theologies are creeping in? He describes the pain he's enduring hearing these bad reports that are coming out of Galatia as uh, the pain a woman suffers during childbirth. Uh, that's what he says there toward the end of verse 19. My little children, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In other words, until... Um, the grace of God gets formed in a person's heart, um, they're trapped in that second step of the faith life. They're trapped in that step of life under the law, um, constantly feeling like they have to perform, they have to uh, make something happen in order for themselves to be saved, much like my friend Sean, uh, who I quoted earlier, our allergy to freedom uh, puts us or traps us back under the works of the law and we spend our time performing, performing, performing in an attempt to get God's attention so that he might smile at us and say, oh, okay, you've done a good job. Uh, come on into the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to confuse anyone here. I'm not saying that as we go through the Christian life and we, we work um, out our salvation with fear and trembling or we join God in our sanctification process as Richard Hooker talked about, um, that we are not working alongside the law. We are. That's that fourth step. We participate with God in our sanctification and we find ourselves often uh, obeying God freely and obeying God joyfully and obeying God and looking forward to obeying God. But there are still times as we live our lives out on this earth where our sinful natures will pull us in the wrong direction. And in the case of the Galatians, they're all being pulled in the wrong direction consistently. One last point on this section before I ask another question, and it comes from uh, verse 9 of this chapter. 
Paul says in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, in other words, you've become aware of the law, you become aware that there is a creator God who loves you, now that you've done that, or rather, and here is an Augustinian uh, theology that was drawn from Paul, to be known by God. In other words, God always does the acting. He's always the primary or first actor in our life. In other words, we've been made known to God. How can we then turn our back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? In other words, why would we trade relationship with God, our Father, who is seeking to set us free in Christ, for the law and the elementary principles of that law? Um, He again likens it at the end of that verse, whose slaves you want to be once more. In other words, you're giving up your freedom and you're actually putting on handcuffs or you're actually being led back into a jail cell that has four walls and a small window, which is the exact opposite of life in Christ, which is all of of earth and heaven thrown in too, to quote C.S. Lewis. So the question I'd like to ask now for a little reflection is, where in our lives do we see places where we uh, naturally fall back under the law? Where do we see ourselves um, either trapped or a victim of our own circumstances for the way we live out our Christian life? Where, where, do, you, where do we notice most frequently in our lives that we're trying to live out the law? Is it um, in, in our work? Is it with our families? Is it, um, is it um, rule-keeping in our faith? Are we bound to a daily morning quiet time, not because we want to, but because we believe um, it's, it's what we ought to do? Are we bound um, to certain obligations in our life, not because we want to or feel compelled to, as Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, but because there's this um, gnawing feeling that if we don't do it, somehow we're in trouble. I've got a real interesting um, piece of art in my living room, and as many of you get to come, I hope everybody in the church gets to come to the rectory, I'll, I'll point it out to you. It's done by a Cuban artist, and it's called Ledger Card Jesus, and it's a relief. It was actually a piece of wood that this artist carved the image of Jesus standing with both arms out, and then he put ink on the wood and stamped it, and the thing that he stamped it on were ledger cards. And in Cuba, the way the Cuban people receive their monthly allowance from the communist government is that they keep a record of everything they spend for the month. So they have a card for the grocery store, a card for the doctor's office, a card for gasoline for their automobile if they have one. And they handwrite with pencils on these cards the amount of money they spend and they turn them in as receipts and get that money back each month in the communist system. Well, the irony, uh, the humor uh, of that art, Ledger Card Jesus, is that God doesn't keep a ledger. So if we, like the Cuban people, are running around with these cards in our pockets of all the good things we've done and we're writing them down in hopes that one day we're going to meet Jesus and hand him these cards and say, look what I've done, Jesus, let me in. Um, We're going to be sadly disappointed. Um, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew um, that there will be many people who have run around saying, um, saying and doing good things, but their heart wasn't in the right place. Their heart wasn't in a place of submission to God. They hadn't gotten to that third step of the Christian walk, um, that uh, freedom from the law in Christ. 
that understanding that Jesus has done it all, paid every penalty for each and every one of us sinful people, and that simply by trusting and believing that, we're set free and welcomed into the kingdom. This last section of chapter 4 is actually uh, a fun piece because we're going to do a little bit more extensive Bible study. I'm going to ask you to, um, before we read this, uh, pause the recording and go back to Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21 and read the story of Sarah and Hagar. Um, Then when we read these verses 21 through the end of the chapter, Uh, they will make a great deal more sense. Just as a quick overview before you pause the recording, um, Sarah was Abraham's wife. Um, Sarah and Abraham were not able to conceive children for almost 90 years, the Bible tells us. And so Abraham decides to take um, his lineage into his own hands. In other words, Abraham wants to perpetuate the Abraham name uh, or the family name. And so he, uh, with the consent of his wife, um, takes a slave woman, in intimacy and conceives a son with her, with Hagar, named Ishmael. And um, this story that Paul brings out of the Old Testament, um, it's worth reading the Genesis story first, again, Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, before we read these verses. So pause the recording, go back with uh, by yourself or whoever you're with, and read those two chapters and then start the recording next. Now that you've read those chapters, let me read you the final verses in chapter 4 of Galatians, um, the title of which in my Bible is Example of Hagar and Sarah, beginning at chapter 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, there it is again, under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. There's that recurring theme of slave versus free. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. To start my thoughts, let me read you a quote from Martin Luther, the famous reformationist, on this particular section of Galatians chapter 4. Luther says, in the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, St. Paul advances the same argument which he amplifies into an allegory in writing to the Galatians. There he argues that all the children of Abraham are not the children of God. For Abraham had two kinds of children, children born of the promise like Isaac and other children born without the promise as Ishmael. With this argument, Paul squelched the proud Jews who gloried that they were the children of God because they were the seed and children of Abraham. 
Paul makes it clear enough that it takes more than an Abrahamic pedigree to be a child of God. To be a child of God, Luther says, requires one thing only, faith in Christ. So the point, the main point of this last section of chapter 4 is that Abraham had many sons and daughters. All of those children were under the law, and some of those children, and Paul points to Jerusalem today as people's continuing the Jews to be living a life under the law. Paul goes on to say that there is a second Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, um, and he actually says in verse 26, that Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Um, he's likening the free Jerusalem to Sarah, the one through whom the covenant that God made with Abraham was not only promised but fulfilled. Uh, that's the big difference between the two women who bore children for Abraham and who their offspring um, also uh, bore more and more children. If you took time to read chapter 21 in Genesis, then that verse 30 would have rung in your ears. The scripture says, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. That's actually a quote from Sarah. Uh, who is telling Abraham uh, to do that. Uh, also of note in this chapter, the quote by Paul from Isaiah, chapter 54, beginning at verse 1, that starts verse 27 of this text, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Um, that was Sarah. She was the one who was unable to bear children until God uh, breaks into her life and breaks into Abraham's life uh, with this promised covenant of uh, many, many children. Um, Paul, clearly um, a doctor of the Old Testament, I mean, Paul, uh, he says many places how he was raised um, as a, a Pharisee, how he knew um, the Old Testament and knew the scriptures better than anyone else, how he excelled um, in his uh, in his training, um, so one of the things that I marvel at anytime I read Paul is how adroitly he kind of shuffles the deck, as we say in seminary. He can move uh, between Old Testament images and stories and use them all as he should to point toward Christ and to point toward our salvation. Um, it's one of the one of my favorite things about reading Paul is always to look for those places where he gathers up Old Testament. Um, examples and uh, uses them to bear on the truth of Jesus Christ. The question I'd like to leave us with at the end of this third section of chapter 4 is what, if anything, uh, about reading the Genesis stories of Abraham, uh, Sarah, and Abraham, and Hagar, um, did you learn that you didn't know before? Uh, what about those two stories um, and about their outcomes uh, seems either new or different or uh, you're seeing it in a different light. Just think for a moment. And maybe if you're, if you're a person who likes to write things down in journal, uh, maybe tonight one of the habits you could begin to form because you found that you've enjoyed uh, actually studying scripture a little bit is that um, you want to make some notes on it. Uh, it's a great way uh, to keep up with what you've read in the Bible and to be able to go back and check um, things that you've written in the past and see if as your faith matures you don't when you read Galatians again another time see things that you didn't see the first time 
thank you for listening tonight. I'm sorry we couldn't be together in person, but I am humbled and grateful uh, to be able to bring it to you electronically. Uh, I want to leave uh, three questions, just three things to ponder at the end of tonight's uh, teaching. Uh, what does it mean uh, when you hear the, the expression, Christ has accomplished everything? Um, if you're by yourself, maybe just answer that question by writing down your answer. If you're with other people, discuss what it means to you, that, that phrase or that expression, Jesus Christ has accomplished everything. Uh, the second thing I'd like us to think about um, as we finish this chapter is what does it mean um, for suffering to be a means for God of spreading the gospel? Um, what, what does it mean to you personally? And, and think about it and talk about it and maybe even give examples in your own life. Where have you suffered and then seen uh, the goodness of God work through that suffering? Uh, Romans 8.28 says uh, that God works good for those that believe. That's never something you want to quote to somebody right in the middle of a tragedy, but most Christian believers that I know will almost always agree after a tragedy that um, they can look back and see the goodness of God actually at work during that time and all the way through to the present. So what does it mean to you that God uses suffering as a means to spread the gospel? And my closing question tonight is where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a person who is in that fourth uh, step of Christianity, a life of freedom uh, under the law of Christ and alongside uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit? Are you a person who is living that free life? And if you're not, um, what's keeping you from that? Um, if you have questions about life in the Spirit, if you have questions about a life lived uh, trusting in the Spirit, then I want to I want to ask you to reach out to me. Uh, email me through the church uh, email. It's gary at pgwinyaw.org or call me at the church office anytime Monday through Friday. I'd be happy to talk to you more about what it means and what people have said down through the ages, people much smarter than me, about life in the spirit, a life lived in this freedom that Paul's been talking about, no longer slaves to the law, but redeemed by Jesus Christ and hidden in Christ uh, to God's glory and for the benefit of ourselves and our neighbors. Thank you again, Prince George Winyoff, for listening this evening. Uh, let's all uh, remember those, like I said in the beginning, who are in the midst of this uh, virus outbreak, who are working as doctors and nurses, who are serving as first responders and uh, law enforcement, um, who are working extra hours to bring care and treatment and comfort to those who are suffering. Let's also remember, like Mike prayed on Sunday, if you were there, uh, all of those people who always have less than we do. We are a fortunate group uh, in this church. Many of us have uh, what we need and sometimes more than we need. And so let us give thanks for that, but also let us never forget those um, who are in need, those who may not be able to work and will lose wages. Um, this may be something that as we come out of this as a church, we may look to help others in certain ways. So if as you're in your prayer time or as you're in your talking time, you think of creative ways to help our neighbors coming out of this virus, let me know that too. I'd love for Prince George Winyaw to be a beacon, a light set on a hill, Jesus says. So thank you again for listening. I'll close this in prayer. Merciful God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you that even though we are separated because of this unique time, we are together as we listen 
um, to your word being read tonight. Thank you for the power that it has in our lives, the power to change us. And Lord, your word says that it never goes out and comes back to you empty. And so I pray that everyone who has heard your word read tonight, who's thought about it and pondered it, uh, will feel um, your sacred embrace and will understand um, maybe at a deeper level just what it means to live a life of freedom in your son, Jesus Christ, and filled by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. And good night, Prince George Winyaw.